What's Next in the American Security Project? I'm Maggie Feldman Filch. Today I'm joined by Dr. Joel Hellman, currently the Dean of the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, formerly of the World Bank, right? I uh, used to be Chief Institutional Economist, but for the purposes of this podcast, we'll be talking a little bit more about his time as the Director for Fragile and Conflict States. Is that right? Right. Dean Hellman, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So in full disclosure, I say this every time I interview someone from Georgetown, I am a graduate student here. We try to be upfront about that. Um, but before we started recording, we were talking, you know, kind of trying to figure out what are we going to talk about. And you mentioned um, you teach here, obviously, and in your previous work, you really looked at the intersection of development and security. Uh, so what is the intersection of development and security in your mind? Well, if you think about it now, uh, right now the share of the world's global poor people living in extreme poverty, um, there's only a small share of that poor that are in conflict-affected countries, about 17% or so. But the way things are going, the trends in poverty reduction, really fast poverty reduction in India, really fast poverty reduction in China, right now, although the largest share of the world's poor are in kind of relatively stable middle countries approaching middle income, if we project out 10, 15, and 20 years, with those current growth rates, what we're going to see is that a larger share of the world's poor are going to be in conflict-affected countries. In fact, by some projections, in 20 years' time, 60% of the world's poor will be countries will be living in countries affected by conflict or in kind of some kind of uh, long-term form of conflict. So, development, which has largely been seen previously as something that happens after stability. Right after the conflict, after the UN and the peacekeepers right. leave, um, is increasingly going to be in countries where they're either in active conflict, they're in post-conflict mode and post-conflict reconstruction. Um, and we need to th really rethink development in those kinds of environments. And if the big share of the world's poor are going to be in those yeah. kinds of environments, then the whole development business is going to be different. So. Obviously, when you're doing development in a post-conflict or ongoing conflict environment, it changes maybe not just what that development is, but how you execute it. Um, and in your experience at the World Bank, you know, you've been in fragile and conflict states. So it's obviously a difference if you're different kind of response. So how does dealing with an ongoing conflict or that right post-conflict differ from what we might think of as regular or traditional development? Sure, and it, it's a great question and an important question. And I think you have to look at it from two angles, and, and you started to refer to those angles in your question. Right? One angle is, how does development fit in into an overall stabilization and peace-building framework? Right? Um, and you might recall the discussions about counterinsurgency sure. and the new framework. So counterinsurgency was a strategy of the military to say, how do we try to stabilize a country um, and, and, and in fact create enough um, areas um, of support um, among the local population to reduce the risks of conflict, um, to reduce their cooperation with those engaging in conflict, um, to get them to support more the efforts, security efforts. So development, all of a sudden became part of an overall strategy um, that was very much led by the military to say, how do we reduce the ultimate sources of conflict in a country? And even more strategically, for troops, active combat troops going into, into areas, 
they would use development as a mechanism um, as part of their combat strategy because they, if they want villagers to cooperate with them to reveal who's a Taliban and who's not a Taliban, if they want, um, if they want to bring the villagers on side with them to identify where IEDs are being placed, one way of doing that is to get by by them support, if you will, by saying, "Hey, look, we're good, we're 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 good guys. Right. We're helping you build roads. We're helping you build schools. We're, we're helping you, you know." <laughs> so therefore. It's worth it to cooperate and collaborate, and 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 you're going to be better off in the long run um, if you cooperate and engage with us. And development activities became an important part of that overall strategy. So that's development as part of an overall conflict um, stabilization and peace building strategy. And then there's a second part um, of how do you deliver development aid and assistance in a country that is either still suffering. Are still engaged in conflict or just dealing with the aftermath of conflict where there's still a lot of violence, uncertainty, risk. The, the sheer delivery of development right. is very different, right. right? Because it's more risky, the kind of people that you can bring in there, the kind of stability, the kind of um, certainty that you need to do development work is different. Right. So both of those things are, are still very much um, things that we haven't fully thought through. Uh, because they, they mean major changes for the way the military does its fighting and stabilization. And they may have major implications for the way the development actors deliver development. Um, one thing you saw, which is interesting, in the Afghanistan and Iraq case was because of the military component of aid, you saw a lot of aid being delivered by the military. Right. Um, which was never happened before. Right. I mean, before you had... UN people helping on the stabilization front. Then you had development actors engaging on the development front. The, the security guys were there to provide the security. Right. They were there to shoot the bad guys. They were there That's to. That's what they you do, know. the military, yeah. yeah. But all of a sudden, you're asking military because to go into a dangerous zone, you can't send someone like me, um, nice development like economist to, <laughs> you know, PhD development economist. Right. No, you've got to send someone who knows how to protect themselves. Um, so you, you had this unusual situation of military men and women delivering development. Now, of course, the culture of the military um, in delivering development is very different from a development actor. Um, I myself was part of, when I was working in Afghanistan, for example, there were provincial reconstruction teams. Yeah, the um, and these provincial reconstruction teams would go out as part of military formations into villages. Yeah. And I would watch, sometimes you would go into a village and you would see young 23, 24, 25-year-old um, talking to villagers in full, you know, in full right. battle gear. Right. Um, and, and, and trying to kind of comes up with a common dialogue and engagement. Um, I mean, one anecdote, I, 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 I remember being in, in one village and, and, and listening um, to kind of a soldier talk to development um, to a bunch of villagers. And I, you know, I turned to the translator and I said, look, um, it's very hard for me to understand right. that I speak English because it's a young guy with a lot right. of slang and yeah. a lot of military slang, um, a strong, aptly happen to have a he heavy accent as well, regional accent. Oh, Lord. And I turned to the, the, the interpreter and said, how are you translating this? And he says, oh, I just make it up. Um, because, I mean, who else, who's going right. to know? But the ability of, 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 of translating that culture yeah. um, is very, sort of very, very much a challenge. So the military faced a lot of difficulties in delivering development. Sure. Um, 
And the development actors were reluctant and, and, and in many ways couldn't take the risk of working in high, highly insecure zones. Right now, what you see even here at Georgetown is that there are a lot of people who came out of the Afghanistan situation, came out of Iraq, who did some of this work with the military mm -hmm. and are saying, well, now I've got to go back and I've got to really learn, learn. Yeah, what, was what development is. I was <laughs> doing was it out there, but yeah. I was doing it according to a handbook right. rather than doing it uh, on the basis of a deep understanding of what development is. Sure. So there are really even two cultures that have to merge in some way. Um, as development in itself becomes more insecure mm -hmm. um, and as development becomes more of an important part of the effort to build security. Um, and I think we're only at the early stages of it. In Afghanistan and Iraq, we had to do it in the fly. And, and, you I wouldn't suggest that. <laughs> and I'm afraid, you know, it wasn't terribly successful. And um, I think everyone recognizes that. But whether or not we fully internalize the lessons of, of, of how to really rethink, reimagine, yeah. retrain both the military and development actors, how they you bring those two cultures together, it, we're still at the earliest stages, I think, of doing it. Well, and that's a really interesting point, right, because, you know, there's, there's sure, the military is hard power. It's a lot of things, but let's just say for the sake of this conversation, it's hard power. And in delivering development, there's a much softer side to that. Um, and I wonder in your mind, when you think about bringing those two cultures together, how do you make it work without undermining what development means and also undermining what the, the role and purpose of the military is? And it sounds very complicated as someone who's not a development PhD. <laughs> no, it's extremely complicated. I mean, first of all, you'll hear a lot of people on the, the, the military and security side saying it creates enormous problems yeah. for us in providing and creating a secure sure. environment, right? Because sure. You know, we want people who are focused on being able to right. deliver that security. And, you know, the kind of the more you get them thinking about these kind of soft, fluffy, puppy yeah, things. Yeah, difficult. <laughs> these are not easy things. And they, they maybe as one per I remember talking to someone in the military is like their, their views is that sometimes even the physical activity that you do, people get softer. I mean, yeah. not only softer in terms of their mentality, but softer, softer in terms like, of their physical preparation. Because <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not doing, every day they're not doing the hard edge stuff yeah, really that keeps them fit and, and, yeah. and focused and mentally prepared to do that's the difficult so things um, that military have to do on a day in and day out basis. So yeah. it's interesting to see that even on the military side, there's worries that oh, yeah. getting them to do that development stuff in some way shapes or maybe even diminishes their ability to do the military and security side. Of course, on the development side, asking the military to do it, the truth is that development, there are, especially in these environments, there are no textbook solutions that say, okay, if I understand how health clinics work in the United States, or in India for that matter, yeah. um, that, and, and I want to help them build a health clinic. That's all I need to know. I need to know how they do a health clinic over in the United States. And then I'll say, well, this is how you do a health clinic. Well, in fact, you want to create a health clinic in a highly insecure, high, very poor, very low level, low level capacity and so forth. All the things you need to be thinking about, all the things you need to be asking the villagers that you're talking to, all the, all the planning that you need to have to say whether or not I can make that health clinic viable. There's, you know, you just—it's not. There's not a handbook there, right. right? There's a there's an experienced development professional who kind of understands that every environment that you're working in is unique and different, 
that that development professional, she needs to know the whole range of possible scenarios based on a lot of experience working in these kinds of really difficult environments to say, okay, well, I know what they did in Bangladesh. I remember what they did in East Timor. This modification, now that I know what you need, might work best for you. Because ultimately, you know, let's talk about building a school, right? Sure, to, to build a school building, that's not too difficult. You can get you right. can get military people to build a school building. Where to put the building, how to make sure that the building will get students to go to it, right. how to make sure that there are teachers that will go to it, how to make sure that the budget that the local authority has includes the maintenance costs for the building and the costs of, 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 of the teachers yeah. and the school administrator or the assistants and everything else that needs to be done. The building part is the easy part. Yeah. If you want the school to function, you need story. all those other things. And if you want the school to function in that particular environment, you need to understand, okay, well, what, what are the religious dimensions that they have to understand right. here? What are the travel and, and you know, the, the costs of moving back and forth? What are, the, um, uh, what are the capacity issues in terms of finding teachers that I'm going to be able to, f to, to populate this school? Those things come from deep understanding of development, right. and it's not something you just sort of say, here's the manual to a 23-year-old guy who's trained to do something completely different. Yeah, and of course there's no sil silver bullet to this, but I wonder, you know, as someone who has done this, I don't quite know what the development term for boots on the ground would be, and now um, as a professor, I mean, you've been a professor on and off, but you are now dean of Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and you know, part of your role here really is to kind of shape the next generation. Is there some, you know, holy grail, even if it's not fully formed in your mind, that you're like, this is the perfect idea of development and security in a single person? You know, is there something that you can almost see quite yet, or are we too far away from that? Well, I think there is. Um, there's no holy grail. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> There's rarely a holy grail to any problem. Anything, yeah. um, but there, there are kind of signs of things moving in the right direction. First and foremost, um, I think you, you are sort of seeing the military, ha having gone through the experience of Afghanistan and Iraq, really trying to understand better. And we are very privileged here in Georgetown to have a lot of active duty um, military officers and, and personnel or people who work in, in that, who were, uh, right. uh, you know, serving, and now are, are, are part of that world. Right. Um, and they're, they're really trying to get the, the deeper understanding based on the practical experience they've already had to complement that. And I think that's great. That is trying to put the two pieces together. Sure. People who understand the military culture, who, who, who were raised in the military culture, who have experience in practical um, boots on the ground, the experience of working in these kind of really difficult environments, and understanding the security problems, and giving them development experience. And that's great because 10 years ago, you kind of either went the development right, path or you the went the military path. Right. Um, now you see a lot of people who are really interested in, in understanding the intersection, and, mm -hmm. and they've got the experience. Um, and that's great. And I think it's getting more and more people who have that kind of unique combination of skills. And, I, and I'm thrilled to see that people are investing that, and especially here at Georgetown, and that's one of the reasons why I was really attracted to Georgetown. Second, institutionally, I mean, I, I see both sides, the development organization saying, you know what, we, we really haven't done as much 
thinking about how do you work in these fragile and conflict-affected environments. We, we always worked in the kind of more stable part of the developing world, right? Yeah. Where, where, of course, there's low capacity issues and there's, right. there's, there's low cap, not, not sufficient, not enough capital. They need expertise and, and models from around the world. But the, uh, these other deeper issues of insecurity associated with conflict and fragility weren't there. Now you've got all the development agencies, I think, very seriously trying to rethink how do the development models that they've, mm -hmm. they've been working with all these years, how does the way in which they deliver development, the rules, the mechanisms, the procedures, the, the infrastructure, the people on the ground that they need, the kinds of training of the people, I, they're starting to tackle that. And I want to emphasize the starting. Sure. Because there's a long way to go. I mean, you know, a place like the World Bank, a place like the IMF, the big development institutions, they've been working for so many years and, and achieving so much in the broad development agenda in more stable environments that to ask them to start making the shift into working in what are still, at the moment, smaller development challenges, because the big development challenge is still tackling poverty in India and China and Brazil, you know, that's right. where still the largest numbers of the poor are. Sure. But to get them to anticipate that that's going to change and in 20 years' time, you've got to start preparing the staff that are going to see the dominant challenge of poverty reduction being in those really unstable, difficult environments. And those development institutions are starting to make the shifts to bring in more of an understanding of insecurity, um, of fragility. Um, into the way they operate. So I think both of those are very positive things. I'd like to see more interaction then between the development institutions and the security institutions. That's harder to do, certainly at the multilateral, um, in sure. the multilateral world. Um, you see it in the UN. Even in the UN, it's hard to get the peace-building people to talk to UNDP yeah. and, uh, you know, those kinds of things. But, but I, I think that there's a... Afghanistan and Iraq shook both communities. It shook the security yeah. community and it shook, it shook the development community and everyone realizes they have to respond. What concerns me now though are two things. One is that the experience of Afghanistan and Iraq has brought a certain fatigue around those issues. Mm -hmm. I think there were a number of people who said, you know what, we tried it, it didn't work, don't yeah. want to talk about it anymore. Yeah. Maybe we should go back to our corners. Right. Let the military do the security. The let the development people do the development. Fine, you know, yeah. and we, have, we don't want to talk about this anymore. Right. Like, you know, nobody wants to talk about it. It's too complicated. Yeah. So I do see a certain amount of fatigue. Um, the Afghanistan and Iraq were loomed so large um, in our thinking about security and development. Um, and we expended so much effort and energy in a way that people didn't think we achieved the outcomes that we wanted, that their response has just been to kind of close off the discussion. The second is, uh, I mean, I am concerned about where the current political environment is sure. going, whether the appetite to really ask those really tough questions is there. Uh, and I, I, I'm afraid I don't see that yet. I mean, it's going to take a lot of deep thinking and rethinking to deal with these issues. And that means a deep commitment to development and understanding development and security. And I mean, I think where the current global environment is on development assistance, the current environment sure. in state building, right. um, uh, and these kinds of dialogues, um, uh, you know, there's not a lot of appetite for. Yeah. Um, and so the investment that we'd have to be, we'd have to make in terms of our thinking, in terms of our structures, in terms of our institutional structures, to make the changes, I, I don't think there's a lot of appetite to do it. Well, Dean Hellman, our last question uh, is, is typically what's next, but of course in the case of our podcast we've been talking about what's next in development. So you get 
our special last question, which is new um, to this to our second season of the podcast, which is um, we like to ask people if this isn't what you are doing. You know, if you were living in a parallel universe and you could have any other job except for one you've already had, if you went into a completely different career, what would it have been? Oh, I, I, I've already done like five different careers in my <laughs> one career. So I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, I, I'm really kind of fascinated by the, by the challenges of, of thinking about the intersection of a very different world. Yeah. I think that's where the exciting solutions come. come. Whether it's the world of academia confronting practical problems of policy and watching you know, the academics think about policy and the policymakers trying to bring greater depth to their, to their policy thinking. Um, whether it's the security people thinking about development and development sure. people thinking about security, whether it's the science geeks thinking about international affairs and the international affairs starting to learn a little bit more science. That's um, scary though, science <laughs> is scary. <laughs> um, you know, or, or whether it's the it, people who do private business and in the private sector mm -hmm. thinking more about how do I bring that energy into the development assistance sure. um, and how do I, you know, how, do, how does the development assistance learn from the private sector and vice versa. I, I think it's in those it's in those boundary areas that the most interesting solutions to kind of problems are going to be found. And you know I've been lucky in my career. I started out as an academic, then I went to do development work. Now I'm back as a dean, but I'm in a dean in a school that's combining policy and theory. Yeah. Um, that's in Washington, so we we have to always be practical and policy yeah. oriented. Um, so I really can't imagine a better position to be in um, at the moment. What I'd like to see in a parallel universe is a better climate <laughs> for doing this kind of work. Absolutely. I, I think it's, w you know, we're geared up here, you know, at Georgetown to do this work. What I'm most fearful of is at the moment that we're really, you know, chomping at the bit to engage in this stuff, we, we don't have the political environment that is, that is really going to um, actively engage on these issues. Um, I think that the experience of the last 10 years has led to a turning inward, not only in the United States, sure. but we see it so many countries. I mean, we saw it in the Brexit. We see it in the rise of, you know, more right-wing parties in Europe. Everybody is turning inward. They looked out in the world. We tried to engage. It was dangerous. It was scary. And you know what? Now we got to focus on ourselves. We've got to build. Uh, we've got to build walls and metaphorically right, and, and, and literally, and, and physically. Um, yeah. And that's that's unfortunate because that's that's not confronting the problems that not only do I think are most interesting and most, uh, most important and compelling, um, but I think are you know, most necessary to deal with the global issues that we're facing. So my only concern is not my career path, because sure. I couldn't be happier. Um, uh, my concern is you know, to what extent do we have an environment which is really actively seeking solutions to some of these issues, rather than trying to back away um, from them. And that's what I'd like to see in a parallel universe. Well, Dean Joel Hellman, Dean of the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.